I, I find that to be the most rewarding part of the whole process. I think when that happens, you really then are thriving on the information overload. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Julie Rasmussen. Julie is a highly experienced corporate executive and entrepreneur who's held senior leadership and board roles in a range of industries in a number of countries, major organizations including Mary Kay, CVSL, and NXRay. She's now the founder and CEO of SheBanks, a fintech startup whose mission is to increase financial security for women. In this episode, Julie shares insights on her 7S's system, using Slack for note-taking, identifying systemic issues, finding white spaces, and far more. Keep listening to learn how Julie truly thrives on overload. Wonderful to have you on the show, Julie. Hey, Ross. It's great to be here. So since I reached out to you to uh, interview you on how do you thrive on overload, I gather you've thought a little bit more about the uh, subject. I have indeed. And, you know, it's quite fascinating because until you sent me your list of questions about thriving on information overload, my opinion about it really was more like, you know, barely surviving on information overload. And I think sometimes it's more like drowning in information overload. It's kind of like trying to drink from a fire hose or in the immortal words of the Texas punk rock band, the butthole surfers, it's like drinking from a fountain that is pouring like an avalanche coming down the mountain. Oh, they, they knew all about it then. Yeah, exactly. And then I, I started looking at your list of questions and listening to some of your other interviews. And uh, in particular, one of your most recent ones uh, with Leslie Shannon from Nokia, who's one of my very good mm. friends and really one of the most brilliant and interesting people you know, you'll ever have a hope to have a chance to meet. And I started thinking, you know, she mentions her five Fs. She has find, filter, file, familiarize, and formulate. And I started yep. thinking more consciously about the fact that, in fact, I, I do thrive on information overload because this is where I get the ideas to start up new businesses or fix businesses that I'm working on. So tell, uh, tell us what it is. So what is your my, friend? My process is not that different, I think, than her process. And again, I will repeat what Leslie think, says. One thing she says, it's very important to find what works for you as an individual and what works for one person mm. might not work for another. And what I discovered that my process, if we want to name it as a system, is the seven S's. And it really consists of search, 
scan, sort, structure, save, synthesize, and then synergize. So my information processing uh, starts in the morning. I get a strong espresso and I check out four or five different TV channels, then go to the office where I'll spend really between one and three hours looking at the various newsletters and publications that push info to me. These are news aggregators and publications that I subscribe to. So so this is the starting with the search. So is this a chronological order as in you start with the search? I just start by scanning my inbox, what has been pushed to me and scanning the headlines and the news aggregators to see what the topics of the day are. And then I will delve more deeply into the topics of particular interests that I happen to be researching at that particular time. You know, like one time I was working with a cannabis company, so I would focus on issues facing the cannabis industry. Or if I'm working with a, you know, security and transportation company, I'll be scanning and searching for information relevant to that. My newest startup that I'm working on right now is a fintech ecosystem for women. So I'm looking at everything having to do with fintech, financial products and services, women's use of financial products and services, and then it it just goes deeper and deeper from there. So I start with, with my search. And if I see particular things as I'm scanning a particular author, speaker, article, you know, I'll quickly jump onto Amazon, I'll order that author's book and have it sent to me. Or if a link leads me to another publication, I'll click and I'll follow, you know, the trail of information. Now, as I'm doing that and I'm scanning, I obviously don't have time to read all of this while I'm doing that. So I definitely use speed reading and headlines to scan the info and then a system, Mm. a various system of sorting it. And this sorting is very important. So I'll use flags and email of different colors I'll download things into files, and I will insert names into a database, into an Excel spreadsheet. So if there's a significant person that I'd like to develop a relationship or reach out to for their expertise, I'll, I'll put them in my database and I'll make notes where I ran across them, what their area of expertise is, so that later I can search for them on LinkedIn or the internet, get their publications, whatever it is that's going to help me develop um, information from that person. And then I have a very interesting use of Slack. I set up Uh Slack workspaces for whatever topic that I happen to be researching at the time. Because I do so, because I do everything, almost really everything online. And even if I'm reading a book, you know, you can get a synopsis of the book online. I'll go, you know, you can go to Amazon and click the link to the book. I'll just set up a channel in Slack. So is this for your your use only? My own use only. And nice and novel. Yeah, I don't. I can't really get anyone to to use my Slack channels because I'll have, you know, 150 channels. Let's say on fintech with with everything I've ever read on fintech that I thought was interesting. I'll just make a channel or I'll add it to a channel in Slack. So. Fabulous. Over time, you know, I might have a Slack workspace that has a thousand or fifteen hundred links to various topics, and I, there's many, many tools you can use, like EndNote and and different internet searching tools. But I just found Slack was so easy to use. You know, create a channel, post the link, and then I can make notes right in the Slack channel under the article, or you can cut and paste 
certain paragraphs in the article and paste them to the channel and then you can pin the channel. So that's just how I'm, I'm also a member of many collaborative Slack workspaces, but that's how I have organized my research uh, with articles and online content into, into Slack. Never heard anyone do that, but it makes a lot of sense, not least because, you know, you're already in Slack all the time and, you know, you've got an instant tag by sticking it in there. Exactly. And that's just something that, you know, I just discovered, I just stumbled across as I was researching and thinking, what am I going to do with all these innovation? Yeah. And all these different links to all these different articles, I got to store them somewhere. And I will, and when I'm writing articles or emails, I will just click open my Slack workspace, quickly find the channel copy the link and send it to somebody or click on the article or see the parts that I've excerpted. So it's a, fant- it's a fantastic archive tool I have found for storing uh, this information. So that's my, my main sorting procedure is to you know make an Excel spreadsheet, make a slide, but mostly storing things in, in Slack. And to properly sort all this information my fourth step is structure. Uh, mm. Now, structure here has more than one meaning. So I'm talking both about the structure of the information that I'm sorting. What kind of information is it? Is it meta information? Is it statistics? Is it databases? Is it opinion? Is it a point of view? And what is the key premise or systemic significance of the information that I'm seeking to understand and deciding where to place it and where to sort it. If I don't really understand what kind of information it is, I'm going to put it in the wrong place and it's not going to be very helpful to me. Or I, I might use the wrong information to make the wrong point because certainly in writing an article or devising a business concept, I don't want to use opinion or hearsay you know, maybe create a strategy, I need to kick the tires and make sure I'm using information from an incredibly reputable source. And I need to make sure that I'm backing up with data and statistics. So what sort of tools do you use to then to put structure on it or to to capture the structure, which is apparent in your mind? So when I, you know, Leslie uses this analogy of the Christmas tree, so areas that she has more information, I think she used, you know, the example of Brazil. She knows a lot about that. So she hangs the information kind of on this mental map of, of a Christmas tree that represents Brazil. And it glows very brightly in her mind map because it's so rich with information. For me, it's more like I'm, I'm looking at that green code that flows down the screens in the movie The Matrix, you know, I'm looking right. for the patterns and I'm looking for the underlying connections in this information, which again, I'm looking for the kind of the meta structure. And then I will use mental maps or some kind of systems analysis tools, flowcharts like Coggle or Kumu. And then I also just use, I mean, I find one of the best technologies ever invented that will be forever is just a pen and a yellow legal pad or a pencil and a yellow legal pad or sticky notes and just drawing diagrams, jotting notes, um, questions and things like that. And then I'll keep a folder of all these paper notes. And then later at some other time, I'll go through and I'll think about them and think about where they go and I'll research them. And I will, you know, figure out how they fit into my, to my mental mind map. But I think that 
systems thinking and mental mind maps are really, really critical for organizing this information in your head. So, so I'd love to just dig a little bit deeper into that. So, so for example, on, on the legal pad, when you sketch things out, are there any particular types of relationships that you're trying to capture in terms of dependence or causality or priority or anything else? Yes. So after we have searched, scanned, sorted the information according to what kind of structure and type of information it is, then saved it in the appropriate place, then I think it's really critical to try to synthesize some of this information. So, you know, are there clashing elements? Are there contradictory statements? Are there statements that ring true or are there statements that cause doubt? Um, And I'm looking for gaps both in the information and then gaps in the real world. Like where, if there's a root cause or a systemic element, where is, where is the blockage in the system? Or where does the system ignore information that if inserted to the system could cause it to change? So synthesizing it is about, you know, you've got all these pieces like Legos or building blocks. So you're trying to kind of, see how they fit together and what parts don't fit and what parts do fit. And our patterns revealed that illustrate um, systemic problems. And, and then you think about what, what ways could those problems be addressed? So is this something where you sit back and get into this a certain state of mind to synthesize where you're you, you are pulling back to be able to ask these questions to yourselves? Yeah, synthesis is a, pr- a process of very active work where I'm really consciously reading this information, trying to process it, trying to understand it, and trying to group it together in my mind, you know, in this structured mind map that I'm building. So I think synthesis is really the hardest part. You know, because there is so much information, but when it st- when it tends to start to repeat itself, then you can say, okay, well, you know, seventy percent of the data on this is all congruent. So let me just now make a an object which has certain premises which I believe to be more or less true. That's been now synthesized all that information. So you know, for example, women don't use financial products as much as men because they're not culturized to do it. Maybe that's false, but you know, I've come across 70% of information that tends to agree that's a fact. So I'll tentatively say, okay, that's, that's, that's a truism or that seems true. So I'd like, I'd like to come back to that, perhaps to finish off your seven S's. Yeah. And then the last step is after that information is synthesized and I've got this mind map and I've got this kind of underlying code in the matrix where I think I know how certain systems and forces are working. The next thing is really um, synergize. Now, this is where the real value add comes. And two plus two is not four. Two plus two starts to be five. So, and this is the one that I don't think you can really force. And I find that this requires a kind of, you know, it's, it's an almost, it's an obsessive deep thinking or rumination process 
that runs kind of in an infinite loop in the background, you know, while I'm brushing my teeth, taking a shower, making scrambled eggs, you know, whatever. It's like, you know, you got a little bit of small food, piece of food stuck between your teeth and it's, it's there. You don't, you want to get rid of it. You don't know what you're going to do with it. It's quite annoying until you can, you know, you can get rid of this and, Mm. you know, going for a bike ride, just letting your mind wander through all the information, picking up things, looking at them, turning around, put them back down. Uh, until suddenly, if the process is working and I'm doing this right, I'll get some kind of sudden insight or epiphany that will bring me to a new level of understanding of both the problem, the systemic issues, and then possible solutions. So that's really, um, I think of this as like a typical creative process. And this also reminds me of Leslie's uh, formulation step. And I was very struck by something she said that every solution has the seeds of the next problem. So this reminds me of the Hegelian dialectical process, that every new synthesis of ideas will lead to the next antithesis. And this is really a never-ending process. It also reminds me of uh, the Austrian economist Schumpeter's process of creative destruction. And so I do think that processing information and thriving on information overload is a process of, you know, kind of, creative destruction you're looking for what is what's the value of all this information what insights does it give us for innovation and societal change or you know step change functions and processes um so i I find that to be the most rewarding part of the whole process when you really and that, that i think when that happens you really then are thriving on the information overload you are listening to the thriving on overload podcast If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. Absolutely. And so, you know, this ultimately, of course, the purpose of this is to create something wonderful, which wasn't there before, either to solve problems or to create new opportunities. And so that's uh, where it all comes. But as you say, once you resolve a tension, the other tensions emerge or, you know, you can uh, from that. Exactly, exactly. And I do think that, um, it's very, very important to schedule downtime. And it really goes against our culture, you know, this, this work-addicted, uh, workaholic, high-pressure culture. Um, but I find that I have to schedule, and I will schedule, try to schedule two days a week. Sounds like a lot. But where I just do nothing, but nothing being thinking where you're just going away and you may be writing, you may be writing, you know, writing down your thoughts or riding a bike or doing something, shopping. I, you know, it doesn't really matter what you're doing, lying in bed, watching TV. I don't know. But just um, that's when the, the real um, creative impulses come and that I think your subconscious takes over and will make these connections that re- results in really epiphanies and innovation and synergies. 
So uh, fortunately, two days a week uh, corresponds with the weekend. So the weekend, you're in line with you're in line with the rest of the uh, society. Yeah, it will. But I try to take at least one day during the week, a Wednesday or a Friday or nice. or some day where I will go to. I actually rent a small studio apartment near my office, and so I won't even go to the office because I, I have to have just really no distractions, nothing on my agenda, nothing on my schedule. And, you know, just kind of force myself to have that downtime. Um, a good example for me was I used to take this 13-hour flight from London to Hong Kong back in the days before there was any Wi-Fi on the planes. And I was mm. really lucky because I, I was a CEO of a large organization. So I used to fly uh, business class or first class, you know, with a flatbed seat. And it was such a relief and such a haven to go into this confined space where you didn't get up really for 13 hours. They would bring you your food, bring you your water. There were no distractions. No one could call you. No one's talking to you. And all of my most productive, creative business insights, almost without exception, would come to me during this flight. After a few hours, I'd get out a pencil and a notebook. And you know, the, the words and the thoughts, yeah. everything would just flow, just flows out of your brain onto the paper without thinking about it. it just, it's, just, it's just kind of percolating up from, from the deep recesses of your brain. If you've done the first six steps, then it will just, it just kind of percolates up. Yeah, my, my experience used to always be that uh, I'd literally get the 30,000-foot perspective on my life when I was up there. That's a great analogy. Yeah, that is a very good analogy. So I just want to dig back into a couple of those uh, S's to hear a little bit more. So in the structure piece, you, you, so you use the term mental mind maps. So those a classic mind map with a concept in the middle and then branching forks of, uh, you know, of a hierarchical structures. Not really. Um, I think it's very important that your mind map is very free flowing. So I might just take, you know, one thought or one problem or one question or one fact and just write it down and draw a circle on it. And then I just let my mind wander wherever it wants to go. Like what's connected to that or what's not connected to that. So it's a very free flowing thing. And I'll just, it's, it's like, you know, you just like, spew everything out onto the paper. Then later, I will go back and I'll maybe impose more order on it or more structure on it or make it more formal, um, more like maybe a kind of a classic mind map. But I think it's really important not to have any preconceived ideas like, okay, it has to be organized in a certain way. No. And so when you jot down some concepts, what sort of relationships between them are you trying to elucidate. So for example, um, I started researching for this latest startup. I, my father has a PhD in economics and I've always been very strong in personal finance and economics because of what he taught me. Um, and I've worked with tens of thousands of women entrepreneurs. And then I started to realize that women lack confidence in investing. They have lower levels of financial literacy. So I draw a big circle, you know, over here that represents the finance industry, finance, financial concepts. Then over here, I draw another circle, and this is women, women's, uh, women entrepreneurs, women's challenges, you know, what's going on with women. And I realize these are almost two separate universes. So then I start thinking about, well, 
maybe this is the problem, this disconnect. This is why women are not using financial products and services. Mm. What are the root causes of this? So I'll start to put things in the middle. Like what's the, you know, how can we bring these two circles closer together? What are, are there any overlapping circles, you know, like in a Venn diagram kind of thing? I'll just start drawing Venn diagrams and circles and putting things into them and then just seeing if there are connections. Then when I'm done with this map, I'll see where there are connections, where, there, where I think there should be connections, where there are no connections. So it's the blank spaces often that are as mo- more important or as important as the circles that are filled in with, with data. And so it's where these big white areas are where there is no connection. That's the opportunity, um, you know, to connect. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's a, like in this particular example, it's a huge opportunity. I had no idea until I started researching this. Uh, Oliver Wyman did a study that says the gap in the difference in the use of financial products and services by men and women is a $700 billion global opportunity. You know, wow. that's mind boggling to me. So that's, that's a huge white circle that really bears thinking about and figuring out, oh, how do you fill in this circle with, with basically encouraging women to use financial products and services so that they start investing more and they start to have better economic outcomes. But without drawing that kind of mind map, I don't, I'm not able to really visualize how to do that. that that's really interesting. Uh, on a slightly related note, a dozen years ago um, in Harvard Business Review, there was a strategy map where they did semantic analysis of all of the uh, content that companies created, including all of their filings and so on, and then looked at the relationships to create a network analysis of these companies, which ones are adjacent. And from that, uh, there were white spaces where there's basically industry sectors which are barely exist at the moment where opportunities lie rather than where there are massive clusters of everybody using exactly the same language to say what they're doing. Exactly, exactly. So I'm looking for these these white spaces because really I, I do think, I mean, I, I wish, I mean, I knew there was a disconnect between, you know, the world of finance is dominated by men. This is not a criticism, it's just a fact. And if you think about creators creating things in their own image, it's no wonder that the financial services industry speaks the language that the creators of it understand and feel comfortable with. It's not the same language that, you know, the universe of women who control three-fourths of domestic household spending and that on average have 13 different roles they fill at home versus three or four for a man. It's no, it's no surprise that that universe of women is really speaking a different language. And neither one is good or bad or better or worse. They're just different. And so how can we translate, you know, from one of these worlds to the other in a way that they understand each other better and how when they do, then the first circle here of the financial services industry will then start to communicate with and include and involve this world of women who are not, you know, really participating in or who may be underserved by the existing financial industry. So to me, that's exciting. That that epiphany is just a very exciting because it's a huge open playground with massive, massive amounts of room to play and create value. You know, people are trying to. It's not that it's not that any of that was done on purpose. People want to bring these two 
worlds together. But it's like if you speak English and the other person speaks French, if you don't speak each other's language, it's very hard to communicate. You can do it, but it's hard. It's a lot easier if you have a common language and you can understand each other. So you mentioned uh, building systems diagrams using tools like Coggle and Kumu. And so have you had any uh, education in systems mapping and diagrams or is this something which has come to you intuitively? I think I, I always was a, a systems thinker. My Myers-Briggs profile is kind of an INTP, which is a, a, a researcher and a gatherer of information. However, the answer to your question is yes. And I just recently went back to school and completed an MBA, which I finished in uh, June of 2020. And I'm, I'm already a very experienced, very successful business person. And so a lot of my friends are like, why on earth are you doing that? You know, why are you wasting your time doing that? And I said, well, because I've done many, many startups, I've done many turnarounds, I've sat on many boards, but I want to know if maybe I have one last kind of big startup in me. If I'm going to do another startup, it has to be big because startups are hard and it has to be something that is potentially massively scalable. Or it's just a lifestyle business and, you know, you can do that kind of as a hobby in your spare time. So I went back to Oxford and this is where I started researching all of this information and finding out about all this information about how just how big the gap is uh, in women's use of financial products and services. And in fact, at Oxford, they do have a class on systems thinking. That's how I learned about Kumu and um, that there's a word for these mental diagrams that I draw in my head. Uh, mind maps, I never knew, right? I just thought it was, you know, something that you do because otherwise, how, you know, it's hard to make sense of the world around you with all this different information. Um, and and, I, and I, my answer to my friend's questions was, all that information may be in your brain and, and it comes from your experiences, but in many ways, it's, it's inchoate, you know, it's chaotic. It's just, it's just all mushed in there until you start to really systematize it. And so what going to uh, get an MBA did was give me frameworks like the Christmas tree, like the coding in the matrix. You know, I'm an excellent strategist. It comes to me intuitively. But now I find out there are all these strategic frameworks that you can use to hang your strategies on. And then you can use shortcuts like, well, this is a blue ocean strategy or this is a whatever, you know, red snake strategy or whatever, you know. And I mean, I don't want to get too enthusiastic about all of these crazy frameworks and their names, but these tools, these frameworks really can be helpful tools in helping you think about the information you have. So now that when I see, you know, a huge open white space, I know what the business school term for it is. I forget what it is. I think it's a blue ocean, you know, so, so that's fine. But I know that it's not just me. You know, I know that someone's thought of this before and I'm not crazy. And in fact, you know, I can go research about this if I just Google, you know, blue ocean. So I yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so uh, you definitely need to trademark your seven S's, though. A few decades ago, McKinsey put out their seven S's of strategy. So you might have a bit of a tussle <laughs> on your hands. Okay, well, I'll have to look that one up. Maybe they beat me to the punch. <laughs> no, it's a different seven S's. Uh, I think yours is wonderful. That's a great insight, really, really valuable. And perhaps you can write a book on it. <laughs> but so in conclusion, any, any last recommendations or for 
our listeners on how they too can uh, thrive on overload as you do using your seven S's? Yes, I think one thing to do is to research frameworks because those frameworks can be very helpful and they're good shortcuts and good tools that people have already thought up that you don't have to reinvent um, that you can use as your Christmas tree structure or your mind map structure or whatever. And then we did also read a book um, for the MBA program called Thinking Fast and Slow by behavioral economist Daniel Kahneman. It's a very dense book and there's much repetitiveness in it. But if you will scan the chapters or read a, a synopsis of this book, there's some very important principles in there. Um, and I think it's really important to be aware of confirmation bias and loss aversion. So make sure that you don't, that if you have a certain a thesis, that you, when you research, you tend to, to latch on to information that supports your thesis. So it's very important to force yourself to go get information that would undermine your thesis. That's why I watch both Fox and CNN, right? And then you can come up to your own synthesis and decide, you know, if your, your thesis is correct or not, or if, you know, you're just suffering from confirmation bias. Everything I see now looks, you know, blue because I'm thinking about the color blue or whatever it is that I'm doing. And then loss aversion, if you've really invested a lot of emotional thought into a certain premise or thesis, it's very hard to let go of that thesis if you do find information that would tend to contradict it. And that's called loss aversion. You don't want to let go because you have so much invested in it. So those are two pitfalls I would really strongly advise people to be aware of and try to avoid if they can. That's fabulous. Thank you so much for your time and your insights today, Julie. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.